If you have a copy of the Scriptures, you can turn to Luke 17. I normally would not make slides for a narrative, because usually in a narrative there's not a lot of cross-references, but I chose to do one today. Because I do have a few places where uh, I would like you to see the text, and I have a couple maps for us to look at. But I do want you to have your Bible open, and so Luke 17, I will be reading verses 11 through 19. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. The late scientist and astronomer Carl Sagan once stated, Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Now, Christians are people with extraordinary claims. Most everyone in this room claims to believe in a personal God who created all things. An invisible deity that you have never seen and only read about in a book. And on top of that, most everyone in this room claims to have a relationship with this deity. That you know him personally. Now, if you said you knew some famous actor personally, let's say Tom Hanks. Just saw a Tom Hanks movie last week. I would want to see some proof of that. What? You know Tom Hanks? Get out of here. I would want to see pictures. I would want to see some kind of evidence that you guys hang out together. He calls you at home. You've been on trips together. You've been friends for 20 years. Some kind of reasonable proof for such a claim. But what is the evidence that demonstrates that you have a personal relationship with an invisible God? What is it that best validates the truth of your claim that you know Him? Now, I am not asking what proofs are there that God exists. I am not asking what evidence is there that Jesus rose from the dead. I'm not asking for apologetics. I'm asking what evidence is there that substantiates your claim that you know God. 
Well, according to the Bible, the proof is your life. Your life is to be the evidence that you know God personally. That is the extraordinary evidence. Your transformed life. When the Bible describes the marks of genuine faith, it goes beyond a mere profession. Yes, I believe in Jesus. It goes beyond saying, this is what I believe, and instead looks for a change in the life of the true believer. Jesus speaks about this again and again in His ministry. He talks about what genuine faith looks like, often contrasted with what, gen, with, with what false faith looks like. And he uses lots of metaphors. The good tree and the bad tree. The parable about true faith versus false faith. The wise and the foolish virgins. Same thing. The good and the bad fish. The sheep and the goats. The wheat and the tares. The wise and the foolish builders. One built his house on sand, one built his house on the rock. True versus false. In Galatians 5, Paul lists some of these proofs in what he calls the fruit of the Spirit. And he gives a list of characteristics that are the result of this human divine relationship. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, etc., This is the evidence that you know Him. These are things that are manifest in your life. Or there's the book of 1 John, where John lists many indicators of genuine faith. He says over and over, this is how we know that we know Him. We walk in the light, or we love God, or we love other believers, or we love not the world. In fact, the end of the letter provides a purpose statement. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. How may you know? Well, he gives a list of all of these proofs. Do you have this in your life? Do you have this in your life? Do you have this in your life? And if that's the case, through all of those chapters, he finally says, well, now you know. So, Christian people are to have a transformed life that reveals the invisible God. But there's one other characteristic that may not immediately come to mind when we think of evidence of genuine faith. And in fact, it's one that we find in our text today, and that is thankfulness. I want to argue from this passage in Luke 17 that there is no salvation present in a person's life where thankfulness is not regularly found. To say it positively, giving thanks to God regularly and consistently accompanies saving faith. Not only is being thankful to God good practice, but it is an indispensable proof of eternal life. Now, there are things when you are born again that all of a sudden become different in you. 
All of a sudden you have a love for God, you have a love for your neighbor, you have a conviction of sin, you have a desire for the Word of God, you, you have a desire to hear the Word of God preached, you have a desire to read the Word of God. But how often do you think of thankfulness as being a necessary evidence? Now, we've been going through Luke's gospel for maybe close to five years now. Way back in chapter 9 was kind of the hinge of the book where Jesus has his public ministry around Galilee. And then chapter 9, verse 51, shifts and he is heading toward Jerusalem where he is going to be our substitute and die for the sins of the church, all who believe. And so, from Luke 9, 51 onward, he's heading to Jerusalem, and Luke is recording all of these encounters that he has along the way. He's teaching, he's healing, and we read in chapter 17, verse 11, On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. Now, gospel writers don't include locations just because they're obsessed with details. These are very important details. In fact, it's good for you to have at least a rough understanding of the layout of Israel so that when you read about these cities, these regions, you can say, I know why that's important. So I'm going to share that with you as we get underway here. Samaria was in the center of Israel. And you have Galilee in the north and you have Judea in the south. And because the Jews had such a deep-seated disdain for the Samaritans, they would go out of their way a full day's journey oftentimes to avoid going through Samaria. That is the red line showing you the route that they would take. And yet, when we come to the ministry of the Lord Jesus, he does not have any disdain for the Samaritans. In fact, he sees them as part of the mission field. In fact, if you recall back in John chapter 4, if you've read that account, Jesus meets with a woman at Jacob's well, and she is a Samaritan woman. And then John gives us a little insight into this conflict. She says to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John adds this detail, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So you have this very deep cultural, spiritual divide between these two groups. And they had no interaction with each other, and a good Jew would not even speak to a Samaritan. And so Jesus interacting with this woman in John chapter 4 was very surprising to everyone, including his own disciples. Now the reason for this rift goes back 700 years before Christ. You have a divided kingdom after Solomon where God, as a judgment against the nation for idolatry, divides the kingdom into north and south. And then in 722, the Assyrians capture and conquer the northern kingdom. And they 
take most of the Israelites out of the land into captivity in Assyria, only leaving behind the poorest of the poor, we are told. And so we call all of those nations that went to Assyria the the ten lost tribes. So what the Assyrians did was they exported out of Assyria different Gentile groups for whatever reason. They moved some people around. And so they sent a bunch of non-Jews to inhabit this land, this northern area of Israel. And over the years, you had Jews living among pagans. And of course, over time, they would intermarry. And you have this racial half-breed of half-Jew, half-Gentile, And because of this pagan influence from the nations, you have a very convoluted kind of worship. You don't have true Judaism anymore. And so the Jews rejected them because of this. In fact, um, because of this rejection, the Samaritans decided they're going to have their own religion. And so they chose Mount Gerizim as the only place for true worship. And they erected a rival temple there. They did not believe in the Jewish prophets. And so they did not consider that inspired scripture. So only the first five books of Moses was their Bible. And so you can imagine this would be a problem for the Jews. The Jews who were focused on keeping their lineage pure. The Jews who were focused on keeping the scriptures And now you have this other group who claim to be the people of God, who were half Jew, half Gentile, and this was a detestable thing in the eyes of the Jews. So they would avoid Samaria, but not Jesus. So, continuing on, it says... Verse 11, on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now we have seen Jesus encounter leprous people before in Luke's Gospel. And so it's good for us to be reminded of how terrible this disease was. Leprosy was the most feared disease of the ancient world, and acquiring it was almost a guarantee to live a miserable existence. It was a slow, dreadful death sentence. It not only caused physical deterioration and malformation, but it separated its victims from family, from civilization, and from participation in any kind of social setting. It was a horrible, lonesome fate, and because of this, the lepers, they all tended to group together. This was their only form of community. They couldn't go into the city. They couldn't go into the villages. They were cut off from their family. They were cut off from the temple. And so what do you do but band together with others who have the same sickness? The disease itself is a bacteria. It begins with a patch of discoloration on the face. Then it spreads in all directions. The eyebrows disappear. The face swells. 
And those who worked with leprosy say their faces resemble a lion. You can imagine the flatness and the wideness of a lion's face. It begins to descend all over the body as the disease becomes systemic. It affects the internal organs as well as the skin. As the bacteria invades the bone marrow and as the blood supply is impaired, it causes the bones to shrivel. And so fingers and toes would be absorbed into the body. That was very common. And because of the loss of feeling due to this disease of the nerves, the victim would destroy his own body because he could not feel anything. So imagine stepping off a curb and you sprain your ankle or you break your ankle and you have no idea and you just keep on going. You can imagine how various kinds of infection would set in. The bacteria can also invade the eyes, causing blindness, can penetrate into the teeth, causing them to fall out, and given enough time, it would invade all of its victims' bodily systems. Now, the Old Testament talks a lot about leprosy. In fact, if you read through the book of Leviticus, there are several chapters dedicated to how to discover how the priests were to discover any potential cases so that they could separate the people from the rest of the nation. And there are directions given on how it can be identified. Just to give you a snapshot, Leviticus 13.45, the leprous person, sorry, this this is once the disease has been identified, this is how the leprous person is to alert everybody to the disease. It says, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So the sick person or the person who suspects that he might have this would go to the priests, the priests would examine him, and they would make the determination whether he had leprosy or not, and if he did, he would be separated from the nation, and these were his instructions. He was to not put his hair back, he was to wear uh, torn garments, and he was to cry out that he was unclean if he was near anyone. So, obviously, as far as social stigmas go, this would be the worst. In New Testament times, they were barred from entering the city. And if they did enter any other place like a village, they had to keep their distance. And the mere appearance of a leper on the street meant that everyone was to avoid him. And so in our narrative, we have this cluster of men, presumably, and they form a community. There are ten of them. This is their family. This is their only social interaction. And even if there was any racial animosity between them, because of their common condition, they would have to leave those things aside. 
they would now become dependent on one another. Now, tragedy often does that, doesn't it? Don't you feel that people in society tend to bond together if they go through some difficulty that they share in? Something so radical in their life that when they encounter another person who has gone through the same thing, there's a kind of a unifying power. Maybe cancer survivors, war veterans, maybe former cult members. I used to run a support group for ex-Jehovah's Witnesses, even though I never was a Jehovah's Witness. Um, But I would try to get them together because I studied the movement so much and heard so many testimonies from ex-Jehovah's Witnesses that I knew how much healing there was if we could just get them together and talk about what they had been through. Alcoholics find some kind of common relief in talking to others of the same disposition. People who are victims of abuse. So there's a kind of a bonding effect when people go through some form of suffering. Some kind of life-altering, devastating ordeal. And here you have a group of ten men. I assume they have a kind of camaraderie. Say that five times fast. Their fellowship is centered on their common misery. And they see Jesus passing along. And what do they do? They keep their distance, but they change their announcements. Rather than calling out unclean as they were commanded by the law, they cry out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now, this scene is toward the end of Jesus' public ministry. He would have been well known by this time as a miracle worker. Rumor of his healing powers would have been widespread. And for an ostracized group of lepers, a miracle would be their only hope. And they call out to him. And they call him Master. Now, this is interesting Because there are several Greek words in the New Testament for master. And this one only appears a few times in the Gospels. And it's always used by the twelve apostles. In other words, you don't hear random people calling Jesus master using this Greek word. This is a Greek word that recognizes his authority. It recognizes his sovereignty, his power. And so they're not merely calling out to a miracle worker or some kind of faith healer. They're calling out to someone they recognize is their sovereign. They're calling out saying, this is our sovereign. Verse 14, when Jesus saw them, He said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. So we already 
talked about the priests and their role in this whole thing. This was still going on in the first century. The law of God had not changed. They were the only ones who could give the approval to a person in this condition. They were the only ones who would allow that kind of person to be reassimilated into society. And so if you did not have the approval of the priest, you could not return to your life, your family. You had to go to the priest and be examined. And then if the priest approved of it, you would have to offer a sacrifice. So you would have to take a bird and kill it over an earthenware vessel and you would be sprinkled with the blood and you would have to wash your clothes and you would have to bathe yourself and you would have to shave off all of your hair on your whole body and then you could be entered back into society. So there was a process here. It was necessary for someone who believed that they were free of leprosy, and that's why you would go to the priest if you believed you were free of it, and then have them make the pronouncement, you have been free of this disease. So consider this command that Jesus gives them. These men have full-blown leprosy. They are dressed in the clothing they're supposed to. Their hair is the way it's supposed to be. They're crying out the way they're supposed to cry out. And Jesus tells them, go and show yourselves to the priests. Now, I wonder if there was some hesitation. If there was some surprise. What are you talking about? Look at us. Show ourselves we're covered in the disease. But we don't see that from them. So, if I could just make an observation here, I think it required a certain amount of faith for these men to go and show themselves to the priests because that is what they do. Jesus doesn't heal them and tell them to go. Jesus doesn't lay his hands on them as he has done with other lepers in other scenarios and and heal them. He just says, go, and as they obey his command, they are healed along the way. It says, as they went, they were cleansed. Verse 15, then one of them when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. So out of ten, only one went back to give thanks. Now I was never good at math. But I have a feeling that's not a really good ratio there. I imagine all were ecstatic. I mean, how could you not be? A healed man could go back to his family. He could go back to society. He could go to the supermarket again. He can walk down the street and not have people look at him like a freak show and try to run away from him, children screaming and running. I mean, this was a miracle. They were thrilled. 
And yet one would think that they would all return. I mean, wouldn't you want to thank the one who just did this? But only one returned. Nine out of ten of them did not consider it necessary to give praise or to thank Jesus. Nine out of ten did not think it was necessary. Now I have found over the years that many cry out to God for mercy when their life is a mess. You know, they've just made shipwreck of their lives. They've made bad choices. They've gotten themselves entangled in some kind of life-dominating sin. And they find themselves hopeless and they cry out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on me. But when those prayers are answered and their suffering comes to an end, it's back to life as usual. The life that's devoid of God. It's like they say in prison, oh, he's just born again till he's out again. Because people get in a pit and they call out to God, save me, and God shows them mercy. And yet when things go back to being manageable, their life is not out of control, things are relatively good, all of a sudden, who is the Lord? I mean, this is Israel's story in the Old Testament. You read the book of Judges, you have this cycle over and over again. The people worship idols and they disregard God, and so He punishes them with another nation, and they cry out for mercy, Lord, save us, save us from the Philistines! And God sends a judge or a deliverer, and He delivers them, and then there's peace, and then they go back to their idols again. And that happens over and over and over. I've known people who make promises to God. Lord, if you get me out of this, I'm going to pray more. I'm going to serve more. I'm going to go to church more. I'm going to give more. And then the trial passes and how quickly the person forgets what God has done for them. Now, these men, I imagine, did not give thanks to Jesus because they were so anxious to get back to their lives. They were so focused on living their life. They forgot about the God who healed them. All of them, except one. One of them returned, and we are told this interesting detail by Jesus. He was a Samaritan. Samaritans were dogs, according to the Jews. They were outside of God's will, and they were outside of God's kingdom. They did not have salvation, and one day God would destroy them all. So they would be shunned, and then they would be hated because they perverted the purity of the Jewish lineage, and they believed God was happy with their hatred of the Samaritans. And out of all of these men, the only one to return was a Samaritan. Now, I think this implies that the rest of them were Jews. And the picture here is striking. Jesus, the Savior of the world, 
the Savior of the Jews, the very God that they claim to worship, comes down to His people, is in their midst, and not one of these Jewish lepers has the gratitude to respond to this miracle, this extraordinary evidence that Jesus provides that He is the one they've been waiting for. They don't have enough gratitude in their heart to go back to Him and praise Him or to thank Him with the exception of one man who is not even a Jew. So, I told you the situation with the Samaritans. I told you the situation with the lepers. And here's a man who's doubly cursed. I mean, he's, he's got both. He is not only a Samaritan, but he's a Samaritan who had leprosy. So imagine uh, how he was perceived. But this man, not, not these other assumingly devout Jewish men, this man returns. And verse 16 says, And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. So, previous scene, he's shouting at a distance, Master. Next scene, he's bowing before his Lord and Master. He's bowing before him. Now, leprosy in the Bible is often a type of sin. In other words, this is a real historical event that happens, but there is a spiritual teaching beneath the surface. Leprosy is a type of sin because it is incurable, it is systemic, it destroys people completely. It consumes them. It isolates them. It is a hopeless condition. And so when Jesus cleanses a leper, the reader is meant to recognize that Jesus is a sinner's only hope to cleanse us all from our condition of spiritual leprosy. So this is more than a man being healed of a disease here. This is a picture of Jesus bringing salvation. This is a picture of eternal life being granted. Look what Jesus says here in verse 17. Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And He said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now Jesus asks an appropriate question here. Where are the rest of them? Where are the ones who are calling Him Master? Crying out for mercy. Where are the ones who were told to obey the command to go to the priests? Where are they? None of them became a worshiper but one. And so the nine ungrateful men, we'll call them, illustrate the general attitude of the Jews toward Jesus. We will take what you give us. We will take the benefits. We will take the miracles. We will take uh, the healing and the food and the deliverance from demons. And yet, 
we will not give you our devotion. That was a common attitude among the Jews. Do not expect us to give praise or to give adoration or to give thanksgiving. Now, this was not just their condition. This was our condition as well. This is the heart of man. This is what makes thankfulness an extraordinary evidence. Because you and I are unthankful by nature. We will not give thanks to God. This is why we have to train our children over and over and over, again and again and again, year after year after year. Say thank you. Make sure you thank God for your food. It does not come naturally to the sons of Adam. Yeah, some people, of course, in society, oh, thank God. You hear that sometimes. Oh, thank God. But I have found the people that say that do not really thank Him. And so the scene that we're witnessing with the ten and the nine unthankful is really a picture of the human condition. This is not just Israel's problem. This is all of our problem. Mankind is very slow and even reluctant to give thanks to God. I have a friend on Facebook. I used to work with her. And she does not, she rejects the God of creation, but she knows that it's right to give thanks. So Thanksgiving comes around, and instead of giving thanks to God, she will thank the universe. So she will say, Thank you, universe, for all the blessings that we have received. Thank you, universe, for my children, and so forth. And so if you do not have the God of creation, all you have is creation. And this is what they did in the Old Testament, right? They would worship the sun, moon, and stars. They would bow down before idols. Because they would reject the God who made them, they had to thank something. I mean, you can't give thanks if there's not a direct object, right? I mean, there's got to be something that you're directing the thanks to. In fact, one of the signs of the reprobates is that they refuse to thank God. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. Listen to this. For although, this is talking about mankind, although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So the unregenerate by nature will not thank God. They know the truth about Him because of creation, because God has given them a conscience, and yet instead of giving Him glory, instead of giving praise to Him for all that He's done, they either become totally unthankful, which you see that also, or they direct their thankfulness to something else. 
both of those positions reveal a darkened heart. And, of course, the opposite of that is a person who does give thanks to God, who is not futile in their thinking, whose heart is not darkened. A thankful, renewed heart that loves to give thanks, and it becomes an evidence that you know Him. A person who has a changed heart will find a way to give thanks to God even in the midst of extreme suffering. Have you found that? You know people, I imagine, who even in the midst of the darkest trial will find some way to give thanks to God. How He sustained them through the trial or how His promises remain even though they're suffering or or how it could have been worse and God spared them from something worse even though they're suffering. It could have been worse. There's, There's always some way that they can turn a bad situation into a way to give thanks to God. I've shared this story before, but Matthew Henry, who was the great Bible commentator and pastor in his day, he had a reputation for always being thankful. And one time he was traveling on horseback and he was robbed And that night he recorded in his journal the following. He said, I thank you, Father, first, because I have never been robbed before. Second, because although they took my purse, they did not take my life. Third, although they took everything I had, it was not much. And fourth, because it was I who was robbed and not I doing the robbing. And this is what genuine faith produces. It produces a thankful heart. This response, this response of thankfulness is what makes Jesus declare this man as being part of the kingdom. Look what he says. Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now you might have a footnote in your Bible, and it says at the bottom of the page on the footnote, literally, has saved you. Your faith has saved you. It is salvation language here. It is a declaration made other times by Jesus, many times, that the person is a true believer, that this is a member of heaven. We heard Mark read the woman who anointed him with oil, Jesus says the same thing to her. He says the same thing to the woman who had an issue of blood. He says the same thing in the next chapter we're going to eventually look at when he heals a man. He pronounces salvation on these people because of their faith. So notice the nine had enough faith to believe in the Master's power And they were quick to receive his gift of health and strength, but they cared to go no further. Only the Samaritan had the right response. Only the Samaritan had genuine faith 
which was manifested by thankfulness to God. That was the proof. This man drew near to Jesus. He praised God. He gave thanks. And the others didn't. So I ask you, does thankfulness to God define your life? Does thankfulness to God define your life? Is it a consistent expression of your day-to-day life? I do not mean to imply that everyone who is thankful is saved, but it does mean that everyone who is saved is by result of the new birth thankful. Show me a person saved from the wrath of God, made a new creation, ransomed from hell by the blood of Jesus, born again to a living hope, freed from slavery to sin, has a perfect righteousness before God the Father, and I will show you a person who is by nature thankful. Doesn't mean perfectly doesn't mean 100% of the time. In fact, we're constantly exhorted in the Bible to give thanks. Be thankful. Thank God. But it does mean that a characteristic of the new life is that by and large you are a thankful person. In fact, a person who is always grumpy, always complaining, always griping, always critical, who's dominated by bitterness, ought to have serious concern about the state of their soul. And if you want to see a picture of this in the Bible, think of Israel in the Old Testament. They did not enter the promised land because of their unbelief. And how was that unbelief manifested? Unthankfulness. They spent 40 years murmuring in the desert. So is one of the defining marks of your life as a Christian thankfulness. Carl Sagan once said, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Do you have the extraordinary evidence of a thankful heart toward God? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, oh, how we ought to give thanks in every circumstance, for this is the will of God. Help us, Lord, we murmur about many things day in and day out. Please help us, Lord, to be full of joy, full of thankfulness, so that in the midst of even our darkest hour, we might find some way to give you praise, some way to give you thanks. And Lord, may our thankfulness be an evidence of the work that you've done within us. In Jesus' name, amen.